Hello, and welcome to the Parkinson's Disease Caring Podcast. This podcast is produced for care partners and caregivers of loved ones with Parkinson's disease. This show is brought to you by Dr. Floss's new book, You're a Better Parkinson's Disease Caregiver Than You Think. Please visit pdcaring.com for more information. Well, hello. Thank you for joining me today on this session. Designed for care partners and caregivers of loved ones with Parkinson's disease. Today, I'm going to be talking about common myths and misconceptions that may sabotage caregiving for a loved one with Parkinson's disease. Many, many years ago, my mom developed a tremor in her hands, and this went on for quite a long time. It started out quite mild and never really required any treatment. Um, she, she could function just fine with this tremor, and we attributed the tremor to something called an essential tremor, thinking this was just a benign tremor and not part of a bigger illness. But the tremor continued to progress over time, and it became very noticeable to others. And my mom continued to um, refuse medication to treat it. Uh, and as she would talk to people, she would, uh, of course, they would see the tremor and they would ask her, you know, what is your son doing? Uh, what kind of practice is he in? And she would, you know, happily say, well, he's a doctor and he's a tremor specialist. And so she wasn't a very good uh, marketing uh, person for my practice. I'm sure they were thinking, oh, gosh, she's probably not very good uh, if you can't control your tremor. But years went on, and it wasn't until my mom had a fall that we started paying a little bit closer attention to her neurological symptoms. And over time, it became a little bit more obvious to her medical doctors, as well as to myself, that something was going on beyond just the tremor. Eventually, we realized that she's probably developing early Parkinson's disease. And I sat down with my mom one day and I told her what I was thinking about this diagnosis. She didn't believe me. She said, no, I don't think that's what's going on. I know you're a specialist in that area, but uh, there must be some other explanation for what's happening. Well, we sent her for a special brain scan called a DAT scan, and this is a diagnostic test. Uh, many uh, people listening to this broadcast are familiar. Uh, maybe their loved one has had a test like this to diagnose Parkinson's disease and try to uh, distinguish between other tremor conditions and Parkinson's disease. Well, she had the test. She agreed to have it done, and sure enough, it came back positive confirming the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And she agreed to take treatment and started medication for the Parkinson's disease. Her, her tremor went completely away. Her walking improved, her balance improved, and we were all quite pleased with the results of the treatment. But now um, I was not just a Parkinson's disease specialist with a busy practice here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but now I became a care partner for a loved one with Parkinson's disease. And this is quite a surreal experience for someone who knows so much about the illness and how it progresses and the different treatments that are available for this condition. 
And so I decided to do some research to see what's available to help someone like myself, a care partner, and really surprised to find a, a rather limited number of resources available to help me with some of the questions that were in my mind. So I naturally turned um, to my medical practice, but in trying to be a good care partner, I decided to turn to my practice and talk to the care partners and caregivers that I interact with on a daily basis in my medical practice. And I decided to start a research project. This was about seven years ago or more now. I designed an extensive questionnaire, uh, both for the patient and the care partner or caregiver. And I asked those two individuals as they would come in for appointments, I would ask them to go to separate rooms and to fill out this questionnaire, or if they were unable to write, then a staff member of mine would work with them. And I asked them extensive questions regarding caregiving. And I asked the patient to evaluate their loved one and how well they were doing as a caregiver. I asked the caregiver how well they thought they were doing and evaluating what concerns they might have, what fears they have for the future, just trying to find out what's going on in their minds. What do they know? What do they wish to know better? And this went on for an extensive amount of time. In addition, we developed advisory boards where we would invite groups of caregivers in, and, and these caregiving advisory boards were split into sections depending upon what stage of illness their loved one was in at that time so that we could learn and understand more from these individuals on what they were encountering at home, what challenges they were facing, and what resources they needed. And this led, this research eventually led to um, my book that was published last year, You Are a Better Parkinson's Disease Caregiver Than You Think, and we have more coming in this regard to help caregivers understand more about uh, the findings in our research project. But today I wanna focus on three categories of myths and misconceptions that I see every day in my practice that are possible to sabotage the well-being or the treatment for your loved one with Parkinson's disease. We're going to start with this first category, and it really can be described as levodopaphobia. So we know that the most powerful, the gold standard treatment for Parkinson's disease is carbidopa levodopa. The standard formulation is a 25-100 milligram tablet, and this medication has been on the market now for 50 years. This is by far the most important treatment that we use to treat Parkinson's disease. And there are now about 16 different treatments for Parkinson's disease, but this one continues to be the most important. Yet despite that, I continue to hear feedback from patients and caregivers in the clinic, statements like this. Well, we, we understand that levodopa stops working after about five years, 
So we'd rather you not prescribe this medication right now. Um, we want to use it at a more opportune time, perhaps later in the progression of the illness. So what else can you prescribe for us is the, the common response that I get in the clinic. And the truth is we know that this medication does not actually stop working after so many years. There are many, many patients that uh, us healthcare providers uh, work with over the years where we continue to see the benefits of the medication working for that patient 10, 20, even sometimes over 30 years after the initiation of the treatment. There are certain symptoms that may develop as the illness progresses that may not respond to this dopamine medication. And so it can give the appearance as if now suddenly the medication is no longer working. But in reality, the medication is still treating the symptoms relatively well that it was designed to treat. But now we have some additional problems entering the scene that may require a different approach, a different treatment, or perhaps a physical therapy program or some other modality to help that particular problem. But instead, we can quickly say, well, maybe this medication is not working anymore. We need to try something else. We also hear this type of statement often in practice, levodopa should be safe for later. So again, if it's only going to work for so many years, is the thought process for a lot of people. Well, let's use it later when the illness gets worse. I want to save my uh, strong weapon for that part of the illness. I don't want to use it up early in the, in the illness. Now, we know from a very good study that was published back in 1987 by Diamond and all in the Annals of Neurology, we know that taking levodopa therapy actually leads to a reduction in mortality. So taking this medication helps to promote longevity with this illness, and it appears to improve quality of life. So it turns out that the earlier we start this medication, the better it is for the longevity of the patient. We're going to be talking later in this a discussion about some of the complications that can develop, but those complications can take place no matter when we start levodopa therapy. And so I'll, I'll hear this comment from caregivers and patients as well, that the dosing of the levodopa I hear should be as low as possible because we don't want to lead to having complications down the course and so let's keep the medication dosing low. Well, it turns out that if a patient's going to develop complications, motor complications, we call them, this has really nothing to do with when levodopa was started. It has nothing to do with what dose was uh, given at the beginning. It has to do with the disease progression. We call this the honeymoon period because when a patient starts taking this levodopa medication, there's a very nice response. There's typically very good resolution of symptoms and very little complications. We can take, you know, perhaps two or three doses of medication a day and 
we see a very nice stable response from the medication throughout the awake hours. But then as the condition progresses, we see some individuals that start to uh, get involved in what we would say is sort of a roller coaster process where more doses are required to bring the levodopa, the dopamine levels up into the therapeutic range. And some of those dopamine responses will go above the therapeutic window. So when the levels go a little bit on top there, you may end up with a problem called dyskinesia. This is where a patient may have involuntary, uncontrollable movements. Now, these movements may be very mild, very subtle, and often they're not bothersome to the patient, but they can start to develop in this uh, more intermediate stage of Parkinson's. And then as the medication level comes down, a patient can dip below the therapeutic window and go into what's called an off time. And this is where some of the Parkinson's symptoms may return, like tremor and walking challenges and slowness of movement, stiffness of the limbs. And then as we move into a more advanced stage of Parkinson's, the responses can become more unpredictable. The medication may result in an extended amount of time in the uh, higher range where the dyskinesias tend to develop, and sometimes those dyskinesias can become more troublesome. And then some doses may not result in a response at all. We call these sort of an unpredictable off where you were expecting a response from the medication, but yet nothing really happened. The, the dopamine did not kick in. And so patients are typically taking more doses more often over time. So if you look at this progression and you look at this scenario as a caregiver, you're, you're going to look at this and, and be kind of worried about um, the medication potentially leading to this kind of challenge. But if we had not used levodopa at the beginning and waited, let's say, 10 or longer number of years and then introduced the levodopa, we would be right in the middle of this same scenario almost immediately. So what we've done, in effect, is we've lost all those good years. We've lost those honeymoon period years and we've lost those years where we could have had better quality of life and better motor control with this medication. But instead, we, we didn't use it, we waited, and now we're still in the same scenario with these complications. It's important to also highlight that these complications do not happen to every Parkinson's patient. It really has to do with the age of onset of the patient. On the average, these complications develop in about 40% of patients after about 10 years of illness. But if a patient is older at the time of disease onset, let's say they're in their 70s or 80s, the risk may be as low as 10%. So there may not be a real strong reason to be concerned about these complications for some individuals, and it may end up really hurting the patient to delay or to not use this medication to its optimal response. So what are the action items? What, what can you take away from this first category of levodopaphobia? 
Well, the first thing I would encourage you to do is, is discuss this carbidopa, levodopa, this dopamine therapy with your loved one and the healthcare providers that you're working with and make sure that this medication is being optimized. Uh, so often uh, I might find a patient that comes to our clinic that's using very little doses of this medication and yet they're still taking two, three, four other Parkinson's medications to make up the difference. And they may be experiencing quite a number of side effects from these other medications. So a discussion could take place that looks at maybe using the carbidopa levodopa as a more central part of the treatment and perhaps not needing some of these other medications. So this is a good discussion to have. And it's particularly important to try to uh, dispel these myths and misconceptions about the medication. A second action step is uh, to optimize the therapy, encourage your loved one to consider trying higher doses if the healthcare provider agrees with this approach. Do it carefully. Um, obviously, if everything is going well with treatment, don't rock the boat, don't make any changes. But if your healthcare provider agrees and wants you to try adjusting the medication, then you may try optimizing the therapy to see if you can achieve a better response. Now, I'd like to shift to the second category, um, myths and misconceptions. And this is, I, I hear this a lot, that caregivers or care partners more likely will tell me that, you know, my loved one is doing quite well with the treatment for the Parkinson's disease. They really don't need my help. And the tendency is to pull back and let them be completely independent, try to basically ignore the illness as much as possible and wait until a later stage before thinking about maybe getting involved. And there's some categories that I wanna talk about today that I think you should be more active in monitoring and being a part of helping your loved one. And the first one has to do with this problem called impulse control disorder. A patient um, in one study uh, that was done by the Mayo Clinic said that it can be as high as about 25% of patients on Parkinson's treatment. But a patient can develop this obsessive compulsive behavior where they suddenly start doing something out of character. Uh, gambling seems to be one of the more common impulse control problems. In one of our papers that we published years ago, we talked about a pastor that had never gambled in his life, and suddenly after starting certain medications for Parkinson's disease, he couldn't stop the urges to go to the casino and to gamble. He lost incredible amounts of money, both of his own and for the church. And it wasn't until the medications were changed and this was brought to the provider's attention that the impulse control disorder was able to be uh, stopped. Another example that uh, may happen is like a patient of mine that uh, for some time he would go out to his shop and he would spend hours and hours moving uh, nails from one jar in the shop over to another jar and moving that process over and over again until the jars had, the jar had, was completely empty and the new jar was full of those same nails. 
and then starting the process over going back to the original. Uh, and it wasn't until his wife came out one day and was just sort of observing and watching what he was doing and realized that this is very strange behavior. He's not accomplishing anything, but just sort of obsessed with the same problem or the same task over and over again. And this is a problem called punding, which is an impulse control disorder. It's not dangerous, but it's certainly not a good use of his time, and it could be treated with an adjustment in his medication. So this problem is not always recognized by the uh, care partner or caregiver or even the patient. And many times it's not recognized that this problem is even related to Parkinson's or the treatments. So it's not often reported back to the healthcare providers. And so we need to make sure that we're doing that. So uh, we ask that you continue to be vigilant for this type of behavioral change throughout the condition. Another problem that I would encourage you to be aware of is that of melanoma. We know that Parkinson's disease patients have about a fourfold increased risk of developing melanoma skin cancer due to having this illness. It has nothing to do with the treatment, but it's an increased risk. So we are encouraging our patients to get a yearly skin exam, ideally with a dermatologist to screen for the melanoma. But again, if you are also aware of this, you might be able to spot a lesion and encourage your loved one to get medical attention right away. A sneaky problem that seems to, to come along, um, particularly in the more intermediate to advanced stages of the disease, is something called orthostatic hypotension. This is where a patient stands up from a sitting position or lying down position, and their blood pressure may drop. And certainly if a patient was describing a lightheaded feeling or a a dizzy feeling like they're going to faint, it's often easier for us as a care partner or caregiver to recognize that and think about blood pressure perhaps. But sometimes the symptom is weakness or uh, I don't feel well in my head or I just cannot move and walk as well uh, for some reason today. And it's easy in that situation to attribute the problem just to Parkinson's and ask the provider to uh, maybe adjust medication for Parkinson's. And oftentimes when a patient goes in to see the doctor, they may have their blood pressure checked in the sitting position, and we may not recognize this particular problem. So uh, a caregiver or care partner can uh, get a simple blood pressure cuff, an automated cuff, and check for this problem at home. We want the blood pressure to be at least 90 over 60 or higher in the standing position for the patient to feel well. And occasionally we'll find blood pressures that are lower than this. And that really is the explanation for the patient's problem. This is a very treatable problem. So we wanna be able to help our loved one recognize this particular problem. And you can be the one that goes with the blood pressure machine to assist them and record those measurements. Another issue that you could greatly help your loved one um, is 
this idea that the carbidopa levodopa, the dopamine medication, the absorption of this medication can be affected by protein in our diet. So we recommend that patients wait at least an hour after taking a pill or a dose of levodopa before they have any type of protein snack or protein meal. That way they get full absorption of the medication. Most patients have been told this and are aware of this, but if the care partner is not aware of this, they may accidentally time a meal or plan a lunch date at exactly the time that the next dose of medication is due and kind of put the patient in, a, in an awkward position where they feel like they have to either go ahead and take the medication at the wrong time or delay that dose for several hours after the meal and now they've waited too long to take that next dose of medication. So it'd be great if you could uh, be aware of this potential interaction and, and also remember that dairy, you know, a glass of milk or ice cream can also have enough protein to affect the absorption. So watch out for snacks. But if you're aware of the timing of the medication for your loved one and when meals and snacks are taking place, you can help them avoid this particular problem as much as possible. And finally, we are telling patients that they really need to exercise. It's an important treatment for Parkinson's disease for many reasons. And as a care partner or caregiver, you can be their uh, accountability partner. You can help them um, go to those exercise classes or go to an aerobic fitness um, process that is recommended and be their cheerleader. Go with them and exercise with them, but encourage them and help them get to the exercise classes because this is a very important part of their treatment. And if you're not on board, it makes it a little bit more difficult for the patient to have the motivation to stay with an exercise program. So action steps on this. Number one, be aware of changes in behavior. This impulse control problem continues to need to be watched for throughout the course of the illness. Pay attention to changes of the skin that you might be able to recognize, but certainly encourage your loved one to get a yearly skin exam, preferably by a dermatologist. Check a standing blood pressure if you're wondering why these symptoms are developing at certain times and you're noticing a pattern that it happens when they stand versus in the sitting position. Keep track of protein and levodopa dosing times and help your loved one be able to coordinate that effectively. Help them remember when to take the medication on time. And finally, just being an exercise partner can go a long way to help your loved one um, at all stages of the illness. And so finally, I want to talk about the third myth, and that is I hear this from so many caregivers, unfortunately, in my practice that feel like they are bad caregivers. And in this research project that I did, part of the reason that they feel this way is they feel like that there's a right way to care for their loved one with Parkinson's disease. It turns out that there's not one right way that helps every single patient with every unique problem. And patients with Parkinson's are, are so different in the challenges that they face, in their personality, in the way they communicate. 
And so what you might learn is a proper way to handle certain situations may not be the proper way for your loved one. So you have to be willing and flexible to try different approaches and talk to different professionals about how to handle different challenges. And I think sometimes as care partners and caregivers think that this illness is going to be a slow, steady, consistent progression. And in, when reality, we find that it's not that way at all. That just as soon as we think we're figuring things out and we're getting a good handle on uh, caregiving, it changes. Something happens. There's inconsistencies. Medications may seem to be working and then not working. And so we have to be more flexible and willing to understand that that's the nature of this condition and not blame ourselves for these kind of challenges. We recently um, interviewed one of our caregivers, Alice, and she shared with us her story about the difficult decision that she made with her husband who had Parkinson's disease for over 20 years. She had to make the difficult decision to move him into a nursing home she just couldn't take care of him any longer in the home. And this created a lot of guilt and a lot of uh, sadness for her. It was a very difficult decision. And she shared with us that process and how she uh, made the decision and, and how she's living with it today. But just because as a caregiver, you're no longer able to care for your loved one at home, this does not mean that you have failed in any way. You want the best for your loved one. And sometimes it reaches a point where your loved one needs care from a nursing facility where more specialized care is available, or perhaps you're just not physically or mentally able to do what you were doing previously and you need help, and that's okay. We, we can't feel like a failure when that situation arises. And often my caregivers find that they have better interactions and a better relationship with their loved one when that stress and burden is lifted and now they can concentrate on the positive parts of their relationship instead of um, the difficulties of the day-to-day -day caregiving needs. And, you know, really the reason I came up with the title for the book was that in one room, the caregivers were telling me you know, what a poor job they thought they were doing as a caregiver. They were giving themselves D's and F's and rating how they were doing. And in the next room, the actual patient that they were caring for was giving them A's and A pluses in their caregiving abilities. So who's the best judge of how good of a care partner or caregiver you are? Well, it's your loved one. Your loved one is the best judge, not someone at a support group not your doctor or healthcare providers. It's really your loved one that makes the most uh, important assessment of how you're doing. And what we found is that they were actually doing very, very well, better than they thought. And so I want to continue to reinforce that idea uh, through uh, my uh, ministry now and in the podcast and other resources. So action steps, continue to educate yourself on Parkinson's disease and caregiving, I would recommend um, a book, if I may, by Dr. Eric Allscog from the Mayo Clinic, the new Parkinson's disease treatment book. This is a book that's been out for a little while, but it's an excellent resource for 
not only patients, but for care partners and caregivers, you can find all the information you could ever want on the illness, as well as the treatments. And it's very easy to read, very understandable. So I highly recommend this book. You can also come to my new website, pdcaring.com, and I have resource pages there that you can find other recommended books, other websites, other resources that might be able to help you um, with questions that come up along the way. I'd also like to encourage you to find support, and this support can be with your family and friends. You need people that you can reach out to and touch base with. You need a support group, and there's many important ways to find a great support group, and nowadays you can find one even virtually. I would recommend that you reach out to your local APDA uh, group, for instance, and find uh, a support group to, to work with. You'll build relationships and friendships that will last forever. And you really need to continue to be aware of your own health and fitness. I encourage my care partners and caregivers to, to get a good physical health exam, to make sure they are safe to start an exercise program, and perhaps start an exercise program with your loved one so that you're both benefiting from the exercise and you are partners now in this, in this process. And, and be aware of your mental and physical health along the journey. In closing, I'd like to tell you just a quick story uh, about a, a caregiver from my practice that I caught up with recently. Uh, John uh, was a caregiver for his wife for about 26 years, and she passed not too long ago from Parkinson's disease. And he sat down with me and he said, you know, um, I didn't realize how stressful and how challenging being a caregiver for a loved one with Parkinson's disease was going to be. He said, I could handle the physical aspects of it, but it was really uh, some of the personality changes and some of the cognitive challenges that I, I was surprised about and found particularly stressful. He said, I know I made a lot of mistakes. I could have done a lot of things better over the years. But he said, I loved her every day and I did the best that I could to help her. He said, it didn't matter if I was feeding her, if I was taking her to the restroom, if I was answering the same question over and over again. He said, I approached it every day with the, the most caring and loving that I could give her. And I enjoyed those memories. I enjoyed those times together. He said, you know, she was just slipping away one day at a time and there was nothing I could do to fix this disease. But all I could do was do my best and to love her with all of my heart. And that's all that we can do. You and I, as care partners and caregivers, all we can do is do the best we can and to love our loved one with all of our heart. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining the Parkinson's Disease Caring Podcast. Please visit pdcaring.com for more information. And remember, you are a better Parkinson's disease caregiver than you think.